Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. On April 25th, 2003, the Portland Trailblazers were set to play the Dallas Mavericks in a playoff basketball game. A few minutes before tip-off, a 13-year-old girl named Natalie Gilbert stepped onto the floor to sing the national anthem. Natalie was actually there because she had entered and then won a big citywide singing contest in Portland. Now that night and that national anthem, they should have just been like any other. At thousands of pre-games um, all over the country, but that night, ended up being very different. As you'll see in a moment, Portland's coach, Maurice Cheeks, gets involved, and that national anthem becomes anything but ordinary. Now, what happened that night has become one of my very favorite moments in all of sports history. We're going to watch a video of it, and just FYI, the video is 17 years old, so it's a little bit grainy, but I promise, bear with it, because the content is so worth it. Check this out. To honor America and salute the men and women serving our country with our national anthem, please welcome, as voted by you, the fans, our winner of the Toyota Get the Feeling of a Star promotion, Natalie Gilbert. me every time. That was a playoff game. Maurice Cheeks was a young coach for the Trailblazers, and arguably that was the most important game of his coaching career. But instead of just focusing in, instead of blocking everything out and just prepping for the game, he saw someone in need, and he went and helped her. 
when they asked Maurice Cheeks why he would leave his team to go help Natalie right before one of the biggest games of his coaching career, he said, I am a father. And I thought, what if it was my daughter up there? What would I want somebody else to do? Like a father moved to action by watching a struggling child, Coach Cheeks stepped in. I think about this video all the time. Every time I think of God putting on flesh and coming to earth as Jesus Christ. This comes as no surprise to any of us, but humanity was struggling. And as God looked down on a a broken, hurting, struggling world filled with his children, he was moved to compassion and he came down. We have been struggling for a while. You may remember that it all started way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Now, regardless of whether you believe this story is literal or not, Adam and Eve serve as archetypes for all of humanity. Because you see, they're not only presented as the first humans, they're also given representative names. Adam means mankind. Eve means life. They are us there in the garden. They're placed in God's perfect world. They're given only one rule. You may remember Genesis 2, verse 16. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, it doesn't seem like a very big deal at the time, right? They can eat from every other tree, so who cares about this one? But this is seemingly the case until the next chapter, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So here you have the serpent kind of distorting the words of God. Now, it's not mentioned directly here, but most biblical scholars throughout history believe that the serpent is Satan. There's even a reference to Satan as that ancient serpent in the New Testament book of Revelation. So Satan comes around, starts questioning what God told Adam and Eve. He even says, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a tempting offer for Adam and Eve, the chance to become like God. Most of us know what happens next. Adam and Eve choose to give in to temptation. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's always amazing to me that something so momentous is also so abrupt. They give into temptation, eat the fruit, but everything changes. Sin and death and brokenness all enter God's previously perfect world, and we are still dealing with the fallout, still dealing with the consequences today. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul said, when Adam sinned, sin entered the whole world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Adam and Eve might have kicked everything off, but like Paul says, we all sin, we all mess up, we all fall short, we all hurt ourselves and each other sometimes. Every single one of us has faced temptation and given in at some time or another. See, I think it really comes down to, like Adam and Eve, we look for what only God can provide from things that can never satisfy us. We ask our job to give us peace, but it can't. We ask our money to give us identity, status, but they can't. We ask our politics to give us hope, but they can't. 
We ask our possessions to give us joy, but they can't. We have become experts at placing our trust in things that don't deserve it and that can never come through. Most of us give in to these temptations, temptations to misplace our trust every single day. We choose to pursue the illusion of fulfillment apart from God, something that just doesn't exist. This is our legacy handed down to us from Adam and Eve. But even though it's our legacy, God didn't allow it to become our forever fate. You see, he looked down on a world filled with his struggling children, trying and failing to fight against temptation, and he was moved to action. Like Maurice watching Natalie stumble through the national anthem, God steps in. And what makes our faith tradition so unique is that God didn't step in with a bunch of religious texts. He didn't step in through a big revelation or a prophecy. He didn't step in with this massive cosmic event. He stepped in as a person, as a human being, one of us. As one of Jesus' closest friends, John, said so eloquently, so the word, that's Jesus, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. God became flesh and made his home with humanity in Jesus Christ. Over the last few weeks, we've traced Jesus' life from his scandalous birth all the way to his baptism last week. But today we come to a really difficult but important moment in the life of Jesus, his temptation in the wilderness. You may be wondering why we just spent a few minutes talking about the fall of humanity in Genesis 2 when we're actually going to be focusing on the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Well, as I already said, the reason is because that's where humanity's struggles begin. But the second reason is just as important. These two stories are actually inextricably linked together. You see, in the wilderness, Jesus faces temptation from Satan like Adam and Eve in the garden, but with a very different outcome. I'll tell you why the story of Jesus' temptation is best understood through the lens of Genesis 2 as we break it down together. So let's do it. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Jordan was where he has just been baptized by John the Baptist. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So something important to note from verse 1 is that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus didn't wander in there. Satan didn't draw him in there. This was purposeful. You see, Adam and Eve had failed to overcome temptation, as had every human being who had come after them. But God, in human flesh, as Jesus was determined to break the cycle. Another important thing to note is that Jesus is, like, really compromised here. He hasn't eaten in 40 days which was both literal, like he didn't eat for 40 days, but also representative, a fast representing the 40 years that the Israelites spent wandering in the wilderness and failing to overcome temptation after temptation. And it's important to remember that even though Jesus is God in the flesh, he is still fully human. Those 40 days of not eating would have been greatly affecting him. As Paul says in his letter to the Philippian church, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. 
The author of Hebrews later tells us that Jesus became fully human and giving up his divine privileges meant he can completely empathize with us. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been, listen, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus can empathize with us because he was tempted in every way, but never gave in. He faces three temptations in the wilderness that day. So let's look at him. First, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So Satan starts out right where he knows Jesus is compromised. Jesus is hungry, right? And he also appears to, appeals to Jesus' divinity. He calls him the son of God. Yes, Jesus is divine, but like we said, he is also human. He identifies as such when he quotes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy in his rebuttal to Satan, and he says, man shall not live on bread alone. He was saying, me as a man, I am told I am not supposed to live on bread alone. See, that lets us know Jesus has chosen to fight against these temptations as a human so that as a human, he could do what no other human could ever do face a lifetime of temptation and never give in, never sin. So that's the first one. So it doesn't go super well for Satan. So he decides to change his strategy in the second one. Verse five, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So notice, Jesus doesn't challenge Satan's assertion that he has been given authority over all the kingdoms of the world. That authority was given to humanity by God in the Garden of Eden, but Adam and Eve chose to let evil rule alongside them, and it's been ruling there with us ever since. But like we've said over the last few weeks, Jesus isn't aligning with the kingdoms of this world. He is much more concerned with inaugurating this new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So he brushes that temptation attempt aside. So Satan decides to try one last time, one more tactic. He's learned so far that Jesus is going to quote scripture to combat his temptation. So Satan decides to quote it himself. Verse nine, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. He will to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, it's really important. I need to pause here and emphasize something that I talk about all the time. If you've been a part of Restore for a while, you've heard me say this. But this is maybe the most clear example of it in all of Scripture. You can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say when stripped of its context and its culture and its original intent and the leading of the Holy Spirit, it can be used to support things that are in direct contradiction to Jesus in God's kingdom. Think about it. If Satan can use it in attempt to cause Jesus to sin, then humans can certainly use the Bible for any number of evil things. You and I, we see this all the time. One of my favorite quotes on this subject comes from the late Rachel Held Evans. She said, if you're looking for verses which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. 
If you're looking for verses which, with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. But if you are looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. You will find it. Again, this is the biggest reason that we are doing our year in the life of Jesus so that we can recognize truth when we see it and when we hear it. And that's what Jesus does here. He rebukes Satan's attempt to pervert scripture for his own gain and thus overcomes the third temptation. After that, it says Satan leaves him, but will return at an opportune time. So this isn't the last time that Satan and Jesus will do battle. We'll see him pop up throughout our journey through the life of Jesus. But what Jesus accomplishes here in this moment in the wilderness cannot be overstated. You see, he is the new Adam, is what Jesus is called later in Scripture. The new Adam, starting to undo the mess caused by the old Adam and every other human who came after him. I want to go back to Paul and his letter to the Roman church that we read from just a second ago. Here's that part we read a few minutes ago. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. But that's not the end of the story. Paul goes on. He says, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. You see, Adam's sin brought death to everyone, but Jesus brings life to everyone. Paul said it even more succinctly in his letter to the church in Corinth. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In Lynn Sweet's excellent book about the life of Jesus, he says it like this. In the wilderness, we had a replay of Genesis 2. In the Garden of Eden, there was a battle between a fallen angel disguised as a serpent and a human. In the wilderness, we had the same battle. But it was between the old serpent and the new Adam. The first Adam succumbed to, Jesus, to Satan's temptation, but the last Adam didn't. The first Adam gave in to temptation, but the last Adam did not. The first Adam brought death to all, but the last Adam, Jesus Christ, brings life to all. So as we come to the end of the message this morning, I want to make this very practical for us for a second. Jesus overcoming Satan's temptation in the desert means two really important things for us. Number one, we need to remember that the same spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness, the same one that empowered him to overcome temptation, lives inside of every follower of Jesus. We are equipped with the same thing that Jesus leaned on, the same spirit, the same God in us that Jesus leaned on to combat temptation. So when we face it, we can lean on him just like Jesus did. That's number one. But number two, no matter how many times we fall into temptation, whether we forget to lean on the Holy Spirit or just refuse to or just decide to give in and go our own way, but no matter how many times we fall into temptation, we are still ultimately victorious over sin and evil through the work of Jesus. You see, we are all like Natalie Gilbert, trying to do our best to do what we're supposed to do, but coming up short. 
And as ridiculous and funny as it might sound, God is like Maurice Cheeks. He sees us hurting. And like a loving father, he steps in. He sees us unable to come over the top of the hill to overcome temptation. And so he picks us up and he carries us the rest of the way. And he does it again and again and again. No matter how many times we mess up, no matter how many times we fall short, he is always there, ready to wrap his arm around our shoulders and help us get through whatever we're struggling with. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning, this beautiful story from the life of Jesus. And I thank you for the way that you step in. God, that the word became flesh and made his home among us. And I pray that we would remember that anytime we're struggling, that we would lean on you to combat all those times that we're tempted to place our faith or our trust in something else, something that could never satisfy. But God, even when we fall, even when we fail, even when we come up short, remind us that you are always there, that there is no limit to your grace and to your love. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.